Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Gasoline stations in Brazil are out of gas. Fresh food supplies in Brazilian supermarkets have dwindled. Flights have been canceled. Many schools and universities have suspended classes, all because of a trucker strike. Paul McNamara is investment director for emerging markets for GAM UK Limited, helping to manage more than $11 billion in developing world assets. And he joins us from London. Paul, explain what's going on in Brazil. Well, what we've seen is a combination of the higher oil prices that we've seen everywhere, um, plus a weakening in the Brazilian real. Um, you know, there's a bunch of things gone on lower. They've had big interest rate cuts there. It's one of the uh, the most popular emerging currencies, so those emerging currencies have sold off. But that combination means that the, the price of oil in real has really shot up. And, um, and it, you know, it, it's not just Brazil. Um, about sort of four or five years ago, we, actually a bit longer, we saw something similar in the U.K when tax raises on fuel. Uh, truckers are the people in the modern world who have a lot of power, and um, the government has to respond to that. Okay, so Paul, thank you so much for being with us. I'm struck by the idea that we've had a sell-off in emerging markets more broadly. People were talking about Turkey and Argentina as idiosyncratic issues. Brazil was supposed to be a recovery story after uh, just emerging from the worst financial crisis on record. Uh, and here we are seeing something that will crimp growth, uh, potentially uh, eliminating $2.6 billion uh, from their economy this year. So as an investor, how does this change your perspective on Brazil? Um, I, I mean, I think it's a demonstration of something that we already knew that Brazil was vulnerable on, uh, because I mean, the government has has effectively surrendered to the uh, to the truckers by agreeing to absorb any further uh, rises in the price of oil. That uh, they'll they'll create subsidies as the price of oil goes up. Now, uh, of all the emerging markets, Brazil is in one of the weakest positions to do so. Um, although they've had some success in tightening fiscal policy, because they pay much higher interest rates than anyone else. It's the one country where, where the fiscal uh, rather than the private sector is a bit of a problem. And I think, you know, that's why Brazil has been particularly um, badly hit. And also, I think if you, if you look at Petrobras, which is the, the company which is going to be bearing the brunt of this, I mean, their, their share, I mean, I'm not an equity investor, but their share um, are off about uh, 15% or so in a week. Now, Michel Temer, the president of Brazil, uh, he's got a lame duck government and there's a presidential election in October. Does this mean that uh, you wait until the results of the election before making an investment decision? Um, I, I think it, it's, you know, it increases the risk. I mean, what's different about Brazil this time round is that historically it's been the highest yielding emerging market. Uh, if you kind of go back to 2013, they were in the middle of a hiking cycle, uh, kind of rates peaked in low double digits. Uh, now we've got a headline selling rate uh, around, you know, below 7%, uh, which, is, you know, which is historically very low by Brazilian standards. And it does mean that the price of waiting has never been lower. So I think, you know, that 
the you know that whereas historically you know if you do, if you just sat still and Brazil marked time you made uh, decent profits. I think the calculus is against Brazil and people are going to be less willing uh, to hold low yielding Brazilian assets than they were high yielding assets in the past. So Paul, how are you currently thinking about Brazil? Are you buying more or buying I, less? Um, we're holding on to what's a, what a, what's a pretty substantial and, to be honest, slightly expensive uh, overweight we've held for some time. Uh, I mean, two things stand out for us in Brazil at the moment. One is that this government has actually made, you know, combined with uh, an economic recovery, has made a dent in their fiscal problems. They've about halved the primary deficit from 3% of GDP to just over 1.5%. And at the same time, they're running trade surpluses bigger than they did in the peak of the commodity bubble of around $5.5 billion a month. So that combination of decent activity numbers and a very strong external balance uh, is something that we think should be supported. The trouble is that when the US dollar is strong against the developed markets, it tends to be very strong against EM, and that's where we're caught at the moment. Uh, Brazil is no place to try and fight a stronger dollar story. So putting aside the currency issue, which nobody can seem to have uh, much confidence in right now, if you talk to people, they'll have a view on the dollar and then quietly they'll say, but I have no idea. Um, I'm wondering, though, you talked about the export balance and how Brazil is such a big commodity exporter. And I'm wondering, given the fact that this trucker strike so directly affects that industry, specifically with these soybean exports, uh, how does that change or alter your view on your positive outlook on Brazil? I mean, I think you know this is this isn't um, that long-standing an issue. I, you know, I, I, I mean, EM isn't that diff- different from DM in that investors can bear in mind one-off factors, be it national disasters or strikes. So, you know, if we see slightly wobbly activity data, if we see slightly iffy trade data for a month or two, I, th- I don't think that's going to be that that's going to be a problem. Um, you know, it's the structural situation that investors are looking at. Yeah, I mean, I think we're probably going to get some ropey numbers, uh, but that's not our, our biggest concern. What about the reform of the pension system in uh, in Brazil? Isn't that the, sort of the key issue? It is absolutely a key issue, uh, and you know it's one that investors remain uh, generally quite bullishly biased on. That you know, although President Temer himself isn't particularly popular, uh, the balance in Congress is broadly spe- broadly speaking uh, centrist. And you know, if we get uh, a, a pension reform that's that's correctly put together, uh, or you know, in, in some way politically palatable, I think the consensus is still that that should pass. Um, if we get closer to actually getting that through, uh, that's, that's clearly going to be a positive because Brazil stands out, as I said, as the one emerging market where the government balance sheet, you know, rather than in Turkey, where it's the banks which are the problem. Um, you know, but they absolutely, you're absolutely right. They do need to fix that, that pension reform. Paul McNamara, thank you so much for joining us. Wonderful to have you, as always. Paul McNamara is Investment Director for Emerging Markets at GAM UK Limited with about $11 billion in developing world assets. Joining us from London. We've been talking a lot about Italy today, in particular how markets are in turmoil uh, in Italy as a result of the populist movement and increasing Eurosceptic sentiment that is sweeping the government. But how is this affecting businesses? 
Let's bring in Fernando Napolitano. He's president and chief executive officer of the Italian Business and Investment Initiative based in New York, although he is in Rome right now. Fernando, thank you so much for being with us. So what is the word from chief executives who you speak with in Italy about what's going on uh, with the political sphere right now? Well, as you know, it's been a, a quite a particularly new situation, even for Italy that is used to uh, long negotiations. So there is, uh, uh, let's say, that there are two views. The first is that the President of the Republic acted in the supreme interest, uh, making sure that there is order, at least in the processes of forming a government. And I think it's given a very clear message that Italy is strong and solid within the euro and will be respecting the European agreement, starting from serving the debt and, of course, the uh, member of the euro currency. The second is, of course, uh, there is uh, a general moral hazard by the population in Italy. And I think this is also the result of the quantitative easing. There is this uh, general unfunded perception that uh, there's, there's going to be somebody who's going to foot in the bill, uh, ultimately, and it's going to be the, the central bank. And I think this is what has been fueling the discussions, especially over the last three weeks, that have uh, uh, created anxiety in the market and also the, the difference between the Italian bonds and the German bonds that have skyrocketed as we're speaking. And so this is something that I am expecting CEOs to uh, take the lead in, in, in addressing uh, these issues more broadly, especially vis-a-vis uh, -vis the investors and the debt holders that, as you know, uh, about 30% of the Italian debt, 2.7 trillion uh, uh, euros, it's owned by foreigners. Fernando Napolitano, do you believe that whoever becomes the prime minister or indeed populates the Italian government ought to brush up on their German language skills? <laughs> well, you know, there has always been, uh, you know, uh, hate and love in uh, in the relationship with uh, with uh, Germany, and of course, uh, on the emotion that have been uh, comments that I would not subscribe. But Angela Merkel, I think, uh, made a very clear statement vis-à-vis uh, -vis Italy and the respect that Italy Italy deserves. Uh, the new prime minister or appointed prime minister uh, uh, Carlo Cottarelli, I think, has. Uh, a huge uh, job uh, again, you know, in the next couple of weeks, making sure that he explains and communicates well to the Italian people what is uh, the status, so that uh, September's election, this is uh, pretty much the framework that everybody agrees upon, we will have a cognizant electorate that will go to uh, the ballots understanding that it is not a lot of uh, leeway, uh, considering the fact, again, that we have 130% of the GDP in terms of debt. And, and, and any comparison with Japan is not founded because Japan, 228%, it's all internally owned. So uh, there, is, uh, there is a bit of relationship going on with Germany, but we are confident and we're sure, especially the business community, that the number one partner of Germany in Europe cannot be uh, a defaulting, and we are expecting a lot of help coming from Germany.
So, Fernando, let's just take a step back here, because at the heart of a lot of the turmoil that we're seeing in Italian markets right now is this fear that the uh, movement to break away from the shared currency is going to uh, is going to gain steam. I'm wondering, from a business community standpoint, do you hear uh, companies, executives saying, you know what, if we had the lira back, if we could not have to be part of this shared currency, our businesses would be much stronger. Uh, our currency would be weaker. We would have better uh, export power. Do you hear that? No, I don't. I think that any business uh, a leader in Italy, especially those that are that are fueling the Italian export, are really uh, into the euro and they appreciate having a stable uh, currency. Yes, there are the fluctuations vis-a-vis the dollars that at times may hamper our export. But as you know, uh, every year we are increasing our export, which is now about uh, $500 billion a year. And so everybody, especially in the medium sector, is not regretting uh, the lira. Uh, uh, as you want to do a step back, let's really understand that if we were not joining the, the first year of the group of the euro currency uh, uh, about 17 years ago, Italy would have most likely defaulted its debt and would have uh, you know, a serious like what happened in Argentina at the time. So the, the business community is solid in the back. And by the way, it's the same business community that largely has supported the uh, one of the two political parties, the North League, because, as you know, the, the, the electoral split is that the five-star movement, uh, the new uh, 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 political parties, primarily uh, uh, from the South, the voters, while the North League is primarily from the North, where, you know, the, the strong economic engines of Italy are. So I am not convinced uh, that the business community would support any movement outside the Euro whose cost uh, would be enormous, but most importantly, there is no process uh, of, for uh, quitting the euro. Is this a, a veiled uh, confrontation between the private sector and the public sector in Italy? No, I, I think that the, 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 there, there, are, there are a number of things, of course, which are not working. Uh, and number one is the unemployment rate. Number two, we have had a huge uh, flood of immigrants with, whose process uh, has not been managed, in, uh, managed, been managed carefully. So there is a lot of anxiety, especially in the young people, uh, and, uh, and, the, uh, and the business community, of course, is concerned. But in a way, we are going through a kind of recovery, not as healthy as we would have, we would have liked. But I think the, 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 the future government and the future election, unfortunately, will be, uh, are we in Europe or out of the euro? And so this is, I think, is going to be the major theme where the business community needs uh, really to step up in a way that has never done in the history of Italy. So they need to speak up. And uh, I think that's what's going to happen in the next six to eight weeks. Thank you very much. Fernando Napolitano is the president and the chief executive of the Italian Business and Investment Initiative, uh, speaking about current events uh, in Italy. Tim, there was a story in Bloomberg Businessweek this week by Peter Coy talking about how there seems to be a much lower birth rate among U.S. millennials. And the question is, why? 
And my question was, how much does this have to do with the availability of child care and uh, how, how cheap or expensive it is? And to weigh in on that is Betsy Stevenson, who joins us now. She's Associate Professor of Public Policy at the Ford School of the University of Michigan, uh, joining us from Ann Arbor, Michigan. She's also the former chief economist at the U.S. Department of Labor uh, from 2010 to 2011. Thank you so much for joining us, Betsy. My pleasure. It's great to speak with you. So I want just to start with this idea that the birth rate has been falling among younger people. And I'm wondering, do you think that child care has anything to do with that? So I do think that child care has something to do with it, but I think it's actually um, kind of a trifecta of not just the high cost of child care, but a lack of paid leave, paid family leave. So you, you know, think about it, you go to have a child, you don't know that you're going to be able to take any time off of work. If you do take time off, you may have to take it unpaid. And then you face enormous costs putting those uh, children into child care if you're going to go back to work. And then you often face discrimination in the workplace. And research shows that uh, women can face a really steep wage penalty when they have children. So you put those three things together and you see a lot of young women who are saying, wait, this is really, really expensive. Um, and I'm just not sure I can do it or I need to wait longer to do it. So we are seeing the age of first birth really getting pushed up quite rapidly. And I think part of what women are doing is delaying and they're delaying so that they can save up for to pay that, you know, these these high costs of childcare. And because research shows that every year you delay having a child, the motherhood wage penalty that you face is lower. So they know that if they can just, you know, wait, their careers will turn out better and they'll be able to save up for childcare. Unfortunately for a lot of women though, you know, when you wait and wait and wait to have a kid, you can often run out of time. So, uh, uh, Betsy, I'm just wondering, uh, compared to other nations, uh, where does the United States rank in terms of things such as uh, paid maternity leave or indeed even uh, paid child care? So uh, in terms of, of paid maternity leave, this one's easy because the United States is alone. Um, I think Papua New Guinea also uh, no longer it doesn't have paid maternity leave, but aside from those two countries, the United States and Papua New Guinea, everybody else has paid maternity leave. Um, and the research shows that, that that does increase fertility. So Australia has one of the more recent paid maternity leave policies. In uh, 2011, they introduced 18 weeks of paid leave and then some additional unpaid leave. And there's some new research coming out that shows that women had more children as a result. So uh, it did boost fertility rates. Um, in terms of child care, you know, other countries do support uh, child care more. You know, the United States um, is mostly a system of private child care with very little government funding. So, Betsy, you know, one thing that, that I'm struck by is what would you say to people who said, look, you know, if people don't have babies, then fine, don't have babies. If they can't afford them, that's their issue. Uh, it's a lifestyle choice. If they want to make it work, they make it work. If they don't, they don't. Um, it's their choice. If they're not doing it, fine. What do you say to people who say that? I mean, why do why should we care from a public policy perspective? Well, I think from a public policy perspective, as a nation, we're supposed to be forward looking um, and not just you know, partying like there's no tomorrow. 
So that means that we need to be thinking about a next generation as well as thinking about what, you know, the current generation would like. And the the issue with early childhood education and child care is if you make those investments, they can pay huge dividends in the future. So um, research shows that children who get uh, good early childhood education go on to earn higher wages as adults and to pay more in taxes. So if we want to continue to have, you know, uh, you know, a strong society with people who are productive and a lot of economic growth, well, we need to support the next generation who's going to go on to be those workers that are productive and uh, contributing to economic growth and and paying taxes. Uh, So, and the thing that makes it so difficult for parents is you have your kids early in life. It's you know, we spend a lot of time worrying about how parents are going to pay for college, but parents have 18 years to save for their kid's college. When your child's born, you face college tuition in that first year. In 28 states, the cost of center-based care for a child in the first year of life is more than in-state public tuition in those states. So you could have sent your kid to college for less than putting them in childcare, and yet People tend to have their children when they're just getting their start in life. They haven't saved up to pay college tuition. In fact, some of them are still paying their own student loans. They're paying for their own college tuition. So if we want to invest in children so we're investing in the next generation, we need to help parents out with these expenses because parents often can't do it. And certainly the kids can't do it. You know, a six-month-old can't go to a bank and say, can I have a loan? This is going to make me a more productive citizen. And I'm going to be, you know, a better member of society in 25 years if you just pay for my early childhood education. You know, we that that's not the way the system works. And so it's one of the reasons why we really need the government to step in and support investments in early childhood education. By some estimates, the uh, in the United States, couples spend more than 25 percent, more than a quarter of their income on child care costs. And that if you happen to be a single parent, that number is about 50 percent of your income for child care costs. Is that out of line when compared to other countries? That is out of line with compared to, to other countries. And, um, you know, the 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 United States spends less on um, safety net programs than other countries by a lot. We spend a much smaller share of GDP um, on social programs than other countries do. But And the money we do spend in the United States is way more tilted towards the elderly than in other countries. Um, so if, you know, in, uh, um, in 2016, the United States spent five, the federal government right. spent per child. Um, In comparison, the federal government spent $35,000 per person over the age of 65. So we have a system that's really tilted towards the elderly, and that's because we passed a bunch of policies that are really beneficial to the elderly, like Social Security and Medicare, but we haven't passed policies that support kids. We got to leave. We got to run. Thank you very much. Betsy Stevenson, Associate Professor, Public Policy, the Ford School, University of Michigan.
Pim, you raised a good point earlier when you said you would think that banks would have learned after paying $10 billion in penalties and after a traitor was sent to prison. Evidently not. And joining us to detail uh, what is going on currently in the foreign exchange market is Lenan Nguyen. She is FX reporter for Bloomberg News, and she wrote a story today detailing ongoing uh, abuses, frankly, in the $5.1 trillion a day FX market. Can you explain, Lenan? Well, Lisa, what participants are worried about in this market is that there are a few lingering practices that are still, you know, as far as regulators are concerned, kind of okay. And so um, Andy Mack from Vanguard, who's the head currency trader there, warned of some abuses that potentially could happen as a result of these practices, like last look, where dealers can kind of renege on a price, and front running. Gee, uh, front running. Um, uh, that doesn't sound... Uh really good does it i mean that that that's getting in front of your own customer in order to profit yes yeah, so if you have knowledge in foreign exchange of a customer trade uh, in advance you can kind of get ahead of it uh which is not okay in other markets like equities um andy mack from vanguard comes from the equities market so for a lot of people in other markets this sounds very bizarre uh but in foreign exchange it's actually okay it's still uh under the fx code of conduct and the guidelines it's still okay under certain circumstances let's take a step back because uh from my understanding a majority of the 5.1 trillion dollar a day uh, of fx trading happens now over electronic systems and uh there is a much more sort of algorithmic presence. What's the human component here? And, you know, just can you give us a sense of why some traders still have so much power in setting prices? Well, first of all, the human component and the electronic component still, uh, you know, the, the, the difference is speed, but the practices are still okay, whether you're talking about a human being or a computer or an electronic trade. So everything just happens quicker in these computerized markets. Um, but in terms of the power that you talk about, Lisa, it's more the fact that this market still condones these practices as being legitimate and okay under the guidelines that regulators and uh, industry participants have set. It's still all right to pre-hedge an order, so they call it, um, which many people, including Vanguard, say is purely front-running. What is that pre-hedge? Can you just describe it? It basically means that if you have advanced knowledge of a client order, you can kind of get ahead of it, so either buy or sell. Uh, but the tricky thing there is that if you buy or sell and you tell them you're going to do it, you could potentially move the market against your client. So that's pre-hedging, and in some circumstances, it's fine in foreign exchange. Okay, I just want to understand here, because it, there's one thing that uh, that volume can help determine price, right? In other words, if you have a lot of buyers or a lot of sellers, that can help move the price of a particular currency versus another currency. Um, but this is just an exchange, right? I mean, it's not a, a, as if anybody in between is actually committing their own capital to invest, right? I mean, this is about an exchange of money, not an investment of money. It's not an investment of money. It is an exchange of money. So that's one reason why this is so thorny is because you're basically, as a buy-side customer, exchanging money with a bank or another participant in the market. And so that that's kind of the crux of why this market isn't regulated. So it's why not just go to a, fee a fee-based structure? I mean, you know, whether I mean that's certainly what a lot of the equity uh, world has moved towards. That's true. And that potentially is happening in foreign exchange. But the market has been so used to not having the fee structure for a long time that people just trade on the spread. They just 
you look at a very narrow spread. So, well, let's get a sense, though, uh, just also taking a step back when you were talking about first look. Uh, I just want to get a sense. How frequently is the exchange rate set? Who sets it? You know, I mean, is there so just to sort of talk about, you know, how that whole dynamic plays out? Well, that dynamic, again, because this market is so large, because it's over the counter, it's basically just a direct exchange between, say, Pim and I, we just... Right. We can decide what we, decide. we want to exchange euros for dollars for. Exactly. And so that happens across this huge financial market. This is the biggest, world's biggest financial market. And that happens all the time. And there's no oversight over it because it's just you and I exchanging money. So um, that, that's why it's so tricky, Lisa, because there isn't this kind of overarching regulator in one region managing what the exchange rate is. It's happening you know, bilaterally all the time. What's it going to take? More lawsuits and more people going to jail if uh, they want to reform themselves before something bad happens? I think one person going to prison has already had an impact. This is the story is not to say that there hasn't been a change across the industry. People are super careful about what they say. They're very, very cautious about conflicts of interest. And they really watch their backs. Um, there's a lot of surveillance now as well in the foreign exchange market. So it's not to say that nothing has changed, but there are a few red flag areas that some investors are very worried about, which is last look and front running. Right. So that uh, that admonition that you hear on a lot of recorded lines, you know, this uh, is being recorded for customer service purposes, uh, is something that may be heard more and more on the world of uh, on the telephones or in the systems of Forex traders. Yeah, for, yeah. Forex traders know their phones are being recorded and they're much more careful with what they say. All right. Thanks very much for the story and for enlightening us. Much appreciated. Lan Ann Nguyen, our FX reporter for Bloomberg News. I encourage you to read the story at Bloomberg.com. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.